And uh, so let's just read a little bit of that to get an, a sense of what's going on. I know it's a familiar story, but as usual, there's always things in there that probably, as you read it and study it, you see some other stuff going on. First Samuel, let's start reading in verse 3. We'll read down, first of all, to verse 11 of First Samuel 17. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, or nine and a half feet or so. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him, and he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. And if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be, be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And then skip down to verse 42. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for the, he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the uh, Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by, the, by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds and of the air, to the birds of the air and beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, God of armies, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. Notice he did not say I come against you with slingshots, although he did. That really wasn't the point, right? Um, verse 46, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And be seated. <clears throat> okay, so... Um, just by way of review, then we saw, remember, and this one is a thing that kind of continues in today, and I think you think about it, about appearance, and about being careful, about judging by outward appearances, because the Lord sees the heart, and the motivation uh, is the main thing, the spiritual makeup of a person is the, the main thing, so we have to be very careful about judging from outward appearance, especially when it comes to strength. Right? Because what might appear strong, if the Lord is not in it, we know is weak. So we, it doesn't, so we saw that these things don't mean that the outward man is unimportant. If you think about what we're studying, especially in 1 Corinthians 6, the, uh, outward man is important. How we use our body is important, but, uh, it flows from a heart. And then we are to judge people primarily on their character because God this first, and this, of course, is the most important thing. So those are a few things that we saw last week, but we didn't really get to finish. I want to make a few points 
uh, with David being anointed and the Holy Spirit coming upon him. And, and the latter part of chapter 16 goes in to talk about how an evil spirit, the, the Spirit of God left Saul, and an evil spirit in the KJV, an evil spirit, the ESV says a harmful spirit, came upon Saul. And David was sent, and he was he would play for Saul uh, the harp, or the lute, I guess it was what it was back then. Uh, and music, anyway, for a saw, and it would calm him down. And that is interesting in and of itself. Uh, not, not that I don't think there's any real answer to some of that, what's going on there, but it's certainly interesting. And of course, this will come into play later on anyway, but there's something eschatol- eschatological about David, uh, being anointed and the Holy Spirit coming upon him, and that is something that speaks to future things, right? And we've already seen how the anointing, when, when David was anointed with oil, that speaks to the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And interesting, as we've seen before, when he was anointed, we also learned the Holy Spirit comes, comes upon him. And as we saw that in the Old Covenant, this isn't necessarily to be equated with salvation as it is in the New Testament, but it looks forward to the day when the promise of the Holy Spirit will be given and God's people, when they are saved, are anointed or filled with the Holy Spirit. And when they are, as in the Old Testament, we are now enabled to serve the Lord with power that we did not have before, among other things. Obviously, it speaks of illumination, but also of power, that we are, we have a new nature. We, we now have the ability to do that which we could not do when we were under the dominion of sin. Um, as far as the spirit being taken from Saul and this uh, harmful spirit being given to him, that, of course, is the source of speculation. What does that mean? Um, Does evil, if the KGV translates it evil, does that mean that it was a demon? Does does that mean that it was a morally evil spirit? Or did it cause Saul to do evil things? Uh, the, The word evil doesn't have to mean evil morally, uh, again, that's why the ESV has harmful, because I think the emphasis anyway is that, not that the spirit was evil, because it might have been a demon, it might have been an angel, if it, we're, we don't know, but it caused Saul to have a evil disposition, or a harmful, uh, not, not a very happy disposition, right, and so David would, would play for him to kind of calm him down, so there's, you know, some speculation as to exactly what's going on there, but that's the fact of the idea that, that Saul was not doing well once he was rejected, once the Holy Spirit left him. He's no longer going to use Saul uh, to be a good king for Israel. He's kind of left to his own devices, and, and, and I don't think it necessarily means that Saul was possessed. It could. But, but when, when God no longer gives up, you know, it's there for us and, and works in us, then the natural result is going to be that we're going to uh, suffer in some way, we're, whether it be morally suffer or whether our disposition is going to just be downcast. What do you expect? And so that's Saul bearing the fruit of all this, whatever that might mean. And so David's music brings some relief to him at times, but as we'll see, that that uh, doesn't always work all that well either.
certainly ironic that the rejected king is ministered to by the newly appointed anointed king. Um, and Saul will eventually turn on David, and we'll see why. Of course, it has a lot to do with what we're going to see today in chapter 17 with him killing Goliath. Um, but before I leave that subject, let's think about also how David, and this is something as we begin the study of David, David will point to Christ in a lot of ways. Um, there, there's that theme here of judging by the outward appearance. Samuel has already made that mistake. Uh, judge not, not taking David seriously because of his outward appearance. Well, the Jews do the same thing with Jesus, do they not? Uh, whether, well, they say, well, is this not Joseph's son? Well, really, technically he was not Joseph's son, you know, by adoption perhaps, but not you know, physically. So they made an error, an, an inaccurate error, right? Inaccurate judgment. They say, well, he's, can any good thing come from Galilee? Well, that's faulty logic because first of all, where someone comes from doesn't make up who he is necessarily. And he comes from heaven. He's the son of God, the eternal son of God. So it's faulty logic. They basically are saying that, well, he's just one of us, you know, and how could he be the Messiah? Remember in Matthew 11, they make the mistake of saying, well, look, he eats and drinks with um, these sinners. So he's a glutton and a drunkard. Well, first of all, that's inaccurate. Jesus obviously was not a glutton and a drunkard, even though he uh, would eat with these people who they consider to be sinners, uh, but they made a they made a mistake. They have judged things wrongly, and that's what happens when we don't judge by the Word of God. But instead, we we just make assumptions, uh, you know, based on perhaps what we see. And of course, the same thing we see took place with in Isaiah fifty three. He hung on the cross, and so could this man be the Messiah? How could the Messiah be cursed of God and hang on the cross? And, so they make a uh, the wrong judgment because they look outwardly only and miss the truth. But the Old and New Testament both make much of the stone that the builders rejected, right? And it just proves, all that just proves how much we need the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the uh, instruction of the Word of God, because without that uh, guiding us, we can... We make all of our judgments according to what we see and feel, as the world does, and we see the mistakes the world makes because they do not have a proper biblical worldview, because they don't take into consideration what God has said, and they uh, make judgments that lead to their own, that will lead to their own judgment. And so David is a picture of being rejected as unfit to be a king, and yet here we see in chapter 16 him being anointed among his brothers. And of course, we think about Hebrews 1 9. You have loved, talk about Jesus. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Well, in a sense, that was David. David was qualified because he had a heart that was after, that, that uh, loved the Lord, right? And that's what qualified him. So he was anointed among his brothers. But of course, we know David's heart was not perfect. He was anointed. God gave him that heart. But with Jesus, because he was perfect, because he was righteous, then he uh, was qualified to be the Savior, which I think is what Hebrews is pointing to. Um, 
then a couple of verses that uh, I think kind of bring all this out with Jesus in the New Testament, Acts 4.27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. And we talked about how that took place uh, at his baptism when the Holy Spirit came down upon him and, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But also that was because God says, this is my beloved son, right? And whom I am well pleased. So God was saying, both with the Holy Spirit, but also verbally, this is the one that I choose. This is the Messiah. This is the one that I have promised, right? So that's what Christ means. It means the anointed one. Then Luke 4, 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed, the year of the Lord's favor. And we don't do ourselves any favor when we lead that as politically or socially as Jesus has come to help man in the flesh in some way. The prisoners that he's going to set free are those who have been imprisoned by sin. It, it, it doesn't matter what someone's physical situation is. I mean, it matters to them in, on this earth, but Jesus came to save us from our sins so we might be with God. That, that is, that's all that really matters at the end of the day, and that's what Jesus is referring to here. He's not got good news for the poor that someday you're going to be rich, because that obviously was going to happen as a rule. The poor in spirit, the, the, the poor who, who are needy, who uh, cannot help themselves, right? When it comes to spiritual things. So, um, I think that kind of finishes up. No, one more thing here that from last week. John 2.25. Remember when uh, many were believing in Jesus and Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew their hearts. There's an example where in First Samuel 16 where God says, man looks on the outward, but I look on the inward. I look on the heart, and so we would expect, and there's, that's not the only time where we see Jesus can see man's heart, because Jesus is Yahweh, right? And there we see him doing a God-like thing, a God attribute there in John 2.25. Alright, so just a, a few things to finish up there from last week. Another thing that we could point out uh, also is that um, later we're going to see David conquer Jerusalem. That will be the city that he dwells from, that he rules from, right? And so there's a we have a biblical parallel between the earthly and the heavenly Jerusalem. Just as David uh, conquered Jerusalem and reigned from Jerusalem, so Jesus is said to reign, as it were, uh, in the new Jerusalem, and we, of course, are the new Jerusalem. So Jesus, by conquering his enemies, has uh, established the new Jerusalem, which is the church. And so you, you kind of see these themes taking place and beginning, even in the Old Testament. Um, so as we come to chapter 17 and David and Goliath, Goliath, at begin with demands a lot of our attention because in fact David isn't even mentioned really until or say anything until like verse 26 and 
Goliath, of course, is the big threat here. He's been taunting the Israelites. We learned that he's 9-9. His armor alone weighs 125 pounds. The spearhead weighs 16 pounds, thereabout. But the heart of the problem with Goliath is not his size and strength, because he, David easily defeats that later on, right? The, the problem with Goliath, and the thing that bothers David, is that he dishonors the Lord. He's an enemy of the Lord and his people, and that the, the, the Israelites are afraid of him, and they're not afraid of God. See, because you can't be afraid of both. And I mean in a, in a real, fundamental way. If Israel feared God and by that fear trusted God, they would not fear Goliath to the point that they were paralyzed by that fear and were unable to fight him. And we see, of course, David, who has full faith in the Lord, who is unafraid to fight Goliath. And so that's the, the big problem here with Goliath. And so it's important to see that this is what motivates David to fight Goliath, not just national pride and, and the safety of the people, which certainly is part of it, but they were the Lord's people, the Lord's nation. And uh, that, and we'll see that here in a moment, that that's what David is troubled about. And, and so it's a good example for us to, to when, we're, when we are upset about something, whatever it is, what is what are we really upset about? Is it merely physical things or the things that bother us, the things that anger us? Is it because of the Lord's uh, honor, because of spiritual things, or is it because of fleshly things or our pride? See, and, and we'll see with David that he has a very, I think, godly. Uh, he's upset here. He's angered, as we'll see, but in a godly way. But uh, before we go on, let's say something about Goliath and what's going on here with his size. For instance, how could anyone ever be nine and a half feet tall? Um, because we know in our day, uh, human bones don't support that kind of weight very well. And that those who are very tall, which usually maybe seven, seven and a half feet at the most as a rule, right? That they don't end up very well. They might be strong for a while, but they're going to have problems, and they're going to uh, be ungainly in a lot of ways. And yeah, well, uh, you know, even basketball players that are maybe strong to some degree and coordinated physically, even they, though, as a rule, when you're out there watching them, they do one thing well, and it's not running; it's dunking the ball or blocking the ball. They, they don't have, you know, so you so. But here you got a, a, a warrior who is strong, who is coordinated, who uh, can defeat many men in battle. You're talking about someone who is huge in a way that we really can't understand, but that creates a problem, because how can this be? Well, I think we've already dealt a little bit with this in Genesis as to probably what's going on here. Goliath uh, has very the Bible tells us very emphatically is a leftover of the Nephilim. Um, in Genesis 6, 4, when we first read about these, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards. When the sons of God came in with daughters of men and they born children to them, these were the mighty men who were of all the men of renown. And as we've said, not to be overly dramatic or dogmatic about this, but I think there's, for many reasons, uh, 
reasons to assume that these were the result of, of fallen angels cohabitating with women, and they were huge. They, they were mighty men. They they were they were men of renown. They just weren't you know good soldiers or strong men. They these were unusually strong. There was something going on here, which probably is one reason why it could be the flood took place, at least that's immediately after this verse we, we get into that. Then in Numbers, and there's several verses we can look at, but Numbers 13.33, we know, you say, well, the, weren't they all uh, killed in the flood? And I used to assume that, but at the same time, you got other verses that make it very clear that they were not all. And so how could that be? Because only eight went on the ark. Well, it's been pointed out that uh, Ham's wife, uh, obviously Noah and his sons no doubt stood out as people who had not been corrupted. And it says Noah was blameless. The idea there, more accurately, would be that he was undefiled in his generation. So his line was probably pure, but Noah's three sons had wives. He came from wherever and, and since all the Nephilim were from Ham's uh, lineage, it is assumed then that probably his wife carried with her those uh, that DNA or however you want to look at it. And again, there's just there's a sense in which some of this is speculation, but at the same time, you see in the Bible this connection, right? Uh, so you have. Numbers 13.33, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anarch, who came from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Of course, these are the, the 12 uh, spies sent into the land. And again, we are as grasshoppers, and, you know, for there to be some guys who are getting near seven foot, to say, you know, you, might, you probably wouldn't use the term grasshopper, but if you're talking about people who are Ten foot or better, or up getting around ten foot. Now you're talking about serious issues, and you can understand why there was a reluctance to take them on in battle. And that's what we take we find here. But there's several verses in Numbers and Deuteronomy that speak of these of this connection from Genesis six. And so I think that's what we have um, in Saul in, in Goliath. In the book of Numbers, we read that. Um, Og, the king of Bashan, slept in an iron bed that was 13 and a half feet long and 6 feet wide. Why in the world would he need a bed that big? Unless he was uh, a very large man, right? Um, 2 Samuel 21.20. Now this is later on when uh, David is fighting the Philistines at another time after his king. And there was again war in Gath, which is where Goliath was from, where there was a man of great Stature, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number, and he also descended from the giants. So again, the Nephilim obviously reference to those. In other words, we have giants today in a sense. We have tall men today, but the Bible always speaks about. Now these are real giants. These are not normal men. These are uh, spectacular men in some way. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down, 
These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So we find there is speculation then that these were probably four brothers of uh, Goliath. And perhaps one reason why David picked up five stones was because perhaps all five of them were clearly in view, and we've had speculation as well, but just some interesting things going on here. So, what's going on then is that probably the uh, the DNA is being diluted, the, the genetics are being diluted, so Goliath perhaps was only nine and a half feet tall at that, at that day, but the these were special people who were eventually uh, killed out, obviously, but they, they were not ungainly, weak-kneed giants that we have today that end up a lot of times with leg braces and in wheelchairs, these were uh, renowned for their strength and ability to fight and so forth. So David isn't even mentioned until verse 12. And just before this, as we read, we see God's people in turmoil because they feared the world more than God. So David comes, and I think primarily what, why this takes place is to make God great in their eyes, not just to protect them, because the people's Enemy, as we've said before, wasn't the Philistines. The people's enemy was that they did not trust God. Our enemy is always internal. It's always spiritual. That's the real enemy, the danger that we face. And so here we have a first look at his heart. For instance, in verse 26, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And of course, Saul had said that anybody who kills him would uh, be, marry his daughter and be rewarded and so forth. And we find, uh, we probably get to that today, but we find David going around and checking the story several times. He asks, what, what's happening here? And he gets the same story. So he finds out, he, he gets his facts right. And so, um, God's honor is foremost in his mind and there's nothing that he will not do to glorify the Lord he will not stand around and commiserate with the weak in faith as, as they were doing with one another he will defeat their enemies by living by faith and that the, the, all of God's people then can serve the Lord unfettered because right now the fear of man is causing them to be unable to serve the Lord right um, and we have here kind of another example of Jesus as well, because Jesus isn't just some friend to take away our problems. Jesus engaged in the enemy that we could not defeat for us, right, so that we could um, overcome our trials with the same power that he has. So David is neither impressed or depressed are the size of God's enemies because he has a good view of God. And we made the same point with the 12 spies. Remember, he had 10 faithless spies and the two, Joshua and Caleb, who were faithful spies, had a good report. They looked at the size of the giants in the land and were afraid. But Joshua and Caleb says, we, look at our great God. How, why would we be afraid of these men? Because we have God. You remember, God who was part of the Red Sea. God who delivered us from Egypt. You know, 
it, it all depends on your view of God as to what kind of faith you have. And, and so we see another example of that here. Um, in verse 26 then, as we just read, you know, it, we're, we have to be impressed by the faith of someone so young. And again, I, I assume that David is probably an older teenager at this time at least. Um, not, not young in the sense of a boy. But um, this is the first time we hear anything from David. And we are not, we've been, been anticipating something good because of what we read about in chapter 16. He has a good heart. And we're not disappointed as David uh, and all three of his speeches here in this text are loaded with theological content. We, we read verse 26, look down at verse 32, we see the second time he speaks. And uh, he says, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. So there you see that he, he says, don't worry, I'm going to take care of this. And then down in verse 45. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the army of Israel, whom you have defied. So David knew that it wasn't anything that he was special in. He was, he was not a better warrior than anybody else, but he was coming in the name of the Lord. He, he was coming relying upon God. He understood that his strength comes from God and if, he did, if God wasn't on the side, then it really didn't matter. And so he uses the word of God to soundly defeat uh, Goliath, just as Jesus does. When he, when he was baptized, anointed, what's the first thing he does? He goes out to the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He is tempted of Satan, and he defeats Satan by quoting from Scripture. And what an example for us. So David is put off with the weaknesses of God's people because it reflects on his God. And so certainly his words in verse 26 show us how crucial it is that we should hold the right starting point no matter what we're getting ready to face in life. Um, we have to ask the right question. Who is on our side? Who is being honored in this? Kind of like what we saw in first. Uh, Corinthians 6, 12. Uh, what is this going to lead to? Is it something I can engage in? What does it have to do with God and his work? And so, uh, the size of the foe and the weakness of God's people is not the issue. What matters is God and him and his power. So, this is theocentric thinking, right? God first. God is the center of everything I think and do. His word to me is what explains reality to me. And you know, you ask ourselves, if people could read our thoughts, not just listen to what we say, that's certainly important, but if they read our thoughts, you know, our motivations, what's you know, our how we think about things, would we even would they even think we're Christians? Does the, the word of God and the, the what he says permeate how we think and how we talk to ourselves, right? Or do we just go through, can we go through a day just thinking about life and everything we're going through with no reference to God? Because that's that's problematic. And I, I'm not saying I've never done that. It's a struggle, no doubt, for anyone. 
but we should be training ourselves. To, everything is always related back to the Lord and His work and what's going on and based on the Word of God. So David will not be sidetracked by those who are weak in the faith. You know, he first of all talks to his older brother and they get on to him for, as some boy who's going to come in here and do kind of a braggart. He can, he's going to be able to fight, uh, defeat Goliath and nobody else uh, can. So, you know, uh, Eliab kind of gets on to him for, uh, he said, you go back and tend the sheep and all this kind of stuff. Um, but he's not, he's not going to be uh, sidetracked by those who uh, don't trust the Lord. And then you got Saul says, well, okay, you can go, but here, wear my armor. And David says, well, I haven't tested this. He puts it on and he says, no, I'm not going to do this. And the speculation is, is, well, he was a boy and it didn't fit. Well, I don't think Saul would have been silly enough to put a man's armor on a half-grown boy. He would have known that wouldn't have worked. I think David was an adult size. But see, David had, he says, I have killed the lion and the bear protecting the sheep. Uh, and he no doubt used his staff and he used his slingshot. He says, I haven't tested the armor. This is your armor. I'm going to use the armor that I, that the Lord has blessed me with. And so he says, no, I'm not going to use, you know, it's not doing you any good. Why should I wear it? You know, you, you can't defeat him with it, so why should I wear it? And he, he says, no, I'm going to uh, use what the Lord has given me the victory with. And so he uses his slingshot. Uh, and we know that he chooses five stones for his slingshot. And as I said, this has led to some speculation as to whether he was had Goliath's four brothers in view. Um, but it has been suggested, I think it makes sense, that these slingshots, you know, that were used in battle, and we talked, you know, we know that Israel, I think what's it, uh, Ephraim or the Benjamites, one of them had several hundred left-handed soldiers who were extremely good with a slingshot, right? So that was a normal uh, weapon in battle. And those, they did not grab little marble-sized stones like, you know, a kid would do with his, you know, slingshot today. They would get big stones that said that were perhaps almost the size of a baseball, so that when they swung it, it would actually do some damage. And that, in all likelihood, this is what David was grabbing—something large. And so five, you know, you can only carry so many to start with. So, uh, you know, again, some some measure of speculation. But either way, these stones were small in comparison to Goliath's sword. Uh, you know, and what Goliath coming at with these three, with his armor, his spear, his javelin, and his shield, and so forth, what, it didn't look like they, they would be very effective. But, Martin Luther, remember in, in the song that we sang, one little word shall fell him, and, and I think that in a sense he's referring to David and Goliath, that it is through the word of God that we fell the greatest enemies, right? And, uh, outwardly, again, outwardly, it doesn't look like much, but it is the gospel that is the power of God, right? That's the weapons that we, Paul later says, that's the, that we use. It is not outward uh, armament, obviously, and outward uh, arms. So, uh, 
someone pointed out that there were actually three Goliaths that David had to deal with that uh, day. Goliath's contempt is seen in Eliab, his brother. How dare you? Who do you think you are? Do you think that you're better than us? So David first had to deal with the contempt uh, of others. Um, and then Goliath's mind he had to uh, deal with, like in verse 33, where uh, Saul wants him to wear his armor. In other words, use my experience, use my armor, use my strength to win. Well, your strength and, and armor hasn't won anyway, so why would I use your armor? You know, why would I think like the world? So Goliath's mind. And then thirdly, uh, he says he had to face Goliath's carcass. Because at that point, once he had defeated the mind, the contempt, that he was facing, he now relied upon the Lord, and so Saul was just a body that got, that he was going to kill, which is what he does. He's already won in his mind, you might say. And I thought well, that's kind of a interesting thing to think about, that there's preparation when it comes to having a heart that is given over to the Lord, and, and, and until you're there, you're not ready to face the actual event, the actual enemy. So the one whose heart is right with God and loves him supremely, we, we see now, at the end of the day, can't just talk about it, but has got to go out and do the job, as uh, David does. And we, you know, so if we are Christians who will not tolerate God being dishonored, then we are willing to speak up, to discuss, to uh, argue, to correct, to engage the enemy, however that might be, uh, without fear of retaliation of consequences. Um, otherwise, what are we here for? You know, If we're not willing to engage the enemy, to, to stand up and to uh, take a chance, as, you know, humanly speaking, with the Lord, then, then why are we here to start with? So David doesn't just sit there and say, boy, I wish somebody would do something. David says, no, I'm going to do something because that's the right thing to do. And so, in verses 34 through 37, David points to his private trials, as we refer to, as those that have readied him for public service. I don't need, Saul, what you've done. I, I, the Lord's already taken me. I realized that when I was going through, or at least at this point, he realized that in defeating the lion and the bear, he was ready now to take on Goliath. God had already shown himself strong to him. It's good for us to remember there's a reason why we go through every experience. The Lord is preparing us. He's strengthening us. He's doing something. There's a reason for it. And so David didn't look at ordinary events in his life as meaningless. That's secular. That's people who don't believe in God. Who, 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 they don't see any significance in what's going on in their life. And so he doesn't ascribe victory to luck or even his skill or even being brave. It's always to the Lord. The Lord will give me the victory. And so circumstances change, but our Lord does not. So David saw Goliath as uncircumcised, which meant that he was a pagan, that he had no protection from God. He was not one of God's people. God was not on his side in that sense. There is no way that Goliath could win. Or maybe we could better say it, that there was no way that he should win if David was doing the right thing, being obedient. 
And and if it's possible that, you know, when David was anointed, the day he was anointed, Samuel told him you were going to be king, and David thought, well, you know what? I'm not king yet. And I've been promised to be king. So there's an obvious conclusion, right? Goliath is not going to kill me. Because I'm going to be king someday. And so perhaps he was full of faith because of that. But you know, that's not a bad, I don't think that's a bad way to think. Because in a sense, right, Jesus, we know that if we have Christ, we shall be with him someday. Uh, you're not the one who can kill the body, but kill the soul, right? So why, what, what stops me from putting myself out there and, uh, engaging the enemy because I know he can't kill me or he can kill the body but he can't take away my what has been promised to me right and so perhaps that is why David was willing to risk his life in this sense and that's okay too but I think it's based on what the promise of God the word of God so then uh, okay let me yeah one more paragraph then we'll stop here while it is is uh, God's will that Goliath be defeated, somebody had to rise up to the occasion. Someone had to gather the stone. Someone has to, if I apply it to ourselves, someone, and it, all of us, have to study the Bible, have to prepare ourselves, have to learn how uh, to live by the truth of God. In other words, just to say, well, God's in control, it's all going to work out for good, so I don't really have to be involved in this. It doesn't matter what I do, is sinful, worldly thinking in a sense, because God has ordained the means that the church grows, and it's through us engaging the enemy, through uh, preaching the gospel and, and living with the consequences, right? So God's will work is going to be done, but it's going to be done through us, or it's not going to be done. And it's not saying that God needs us, in a sense, because God doesn't need anything. But when God ordains that through you, this work will get, this work will go, will, will grow, will continue, and then we sit back and say, well, God is sovereign, he doesn't really need me. That's, that's a repudiation of the revelation that God has given us. God uses us to do his work, and so we are never excused to stay out of the battle and to just sit in my little corner and never say anything to anybody because, you know, well, you know, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm gifted or whatever. No, God saves us for a reason. So David has been told by, that he's just kind of a pain in the neck by his brother, that he's green by Saul. Goliath, you know, says you're just a puny little boy. You know, he, he's, he's a pretty boy in a sense. He's obviously a very good looking young boy, and, and Goliath more or less says, you're just a pretty boy. There's no, you know, doesn't take him serious. He doesn't have the right equipment, but he trusts in the Lord, he trusts in the right Lord, and that's what the Lord uses, and that's the thing to remember, because the whole armies of Israel were God's people, in a, in a sense, but only one actually does the fighting. So, um, we will we'll, we'll never conquer anything if we think like the world not do the word of God. Well, I have some more things to say, but um, that will make good introduction next week. Lord willing, any questions or comments? Illustrates uh, the Christian life, a life of faith, a life that does not have to uh, 
be impressed by his outward strength. But Lord, one that knows that truth is found only in God's word, and that's what we live by, and that's what we defeat our enemies by. So we pray, Lord, that you might help us to live in life. Our word just as David did, we pray in Jesus' name.